All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Hey, Matt, it's great to see you. Welcome, welcome. Oh, and our online crew, Dr. Maxi, Dr. Lazan, Tony, good to see you, Fran, Richard, welcome, welcome. It's great to have you guys here. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about. I even came with my chumish in tow because we have a lot to talk about. So, as we know, there is this thing called divine providence, known as hashkacha, well in Hebrew, as hashkacha pratis. What is divine providence? Divine providence means that everything that happens is divinely ordained and specifically intended for a certain purpose and a certain message. In fact, the Baal Shem Tov taught, the founder of the Chassidic movement taught, that not only is everything by divine providence as it pertains to human beings, but even as it pertains to the natural universe, everything is by specific divine providence, individual divine providence, which means that even the way a leaf flutters, you know, a leaf, oh, the wind blows, a leaf falls off the tree and it flutters to the ground, the way that it flutters to the ground is specifically designed based on the master plan. Okay, that's what it says in, uh, that's what it says in uh, Hasidic philosophy, that everything is so precise in the script that even the fluttering of a leaf is, uh, is, is significant. I'll tell you, the, the, the story within the story there is that this insight was once taught by the fifth Chabad Rebbe to his son, who was a little boy. And they were walking, maybe in the forest, while uh, his father was telling him this. And as the son was listening, he took, picked up a leaf and he was like ripping it. You know, you're just yeah. mindlessly ripping it. And his father said, we're talking about the divine providence and the intentionality in every being, and you're ripping a leaf? Anyway, he was a, he was a young boy. But the, point, the, the moral of the story is, everything is holy. Everything has a soul. Everything has an energy. And is specifically guided for a higher purpose. We, look... Um, they say, I know this is the, a point of contention and controversy. I don't mean to wade into any controversial topics. Nonetheless, some say that Alfred Hitchcock was the greatest director of all time. I'm not going to wade into that, but some say this. And what was his specialty? That every single scene, every single narrative, every, every piece of the film was significant. There was nothing extra in a Hitchcock film. By the way, this is not me saying this. I'm not an expert. In this, it's not, it's not my specialty. Nonetheless, this is what I've heard. So what's the point? The point is that if this is true, if Hitchcock could have a film in which everything is significant and every scene plays a role, every action plays a role, is God less of a quality director than Hitchcock, right? God is, uh, is, is, is like ranks under Hitchcock. If Hitchcock can, uh, can do it in such a way that everything is intentional, certainly we can understand this is true regarding God Almighty, that everything in God's world is intentional. And the truth is, this is not only true regarding human beings or animals or plants or trees or leaves that are fluttering to the ground. This is true also with regards to time. The time that we find ourselves in and the, I would say, the uh, confluence of the Torah portion with the time of year, with what we are individually and collectively going through, all of that fits together in a beautiful mosaic and a beautiful narrative. So therefore, I want to open today speaking about what we read yesterday 
in the opening Torah portion of the Torah, the Bereshit, the beginning, and also this week's Torah portion, i.e. the one that we'll read this coming Saturday, which talks about the great flood of Noah, or Noah and the great flood. So here we go. So yesterday, we read the story of creation. Six days of creation, seventh day of, seventh day of rest, and all seems well. And then what happens is, what happens is in chapter 2 and 3 of Genesis, you know, after, I mentioned this in our Daily Power Parsha class, I've mentioned this in other classes some years ago, it's funny because when you read chapter 1 of Genesis, nothing goes wrong. It's wild. It's like the whole story is told. Day one, creation, two, three, four, five, six. Animals and human beings are created on day six. The Torah says it was good. It was evening. It was, it was day, day number six. And God said that it was good. And God finished creation and he rested on the seventh day. And the narrative is wrapped up. And there's no mention of any sin. There's no sin of the tree of knowledge. There's no serpent, no nothing. Comes along chapter two of Genesis, and says, oh, by the way, funny you mention that. In case you're wondering where the more details, yeah, it happens to be that there's a little, a slight little piece of the narrative that we forgot to mention. And in, this, and, and in chapter 2 and 3, it tells us, one second, God put humankind, in the, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And there was a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God said, from all the trees you can eat, except for the tree of knowledge. And the serpent comes along and nudges Eve and says to Eve, says to Chava, Hey, I heard, listen to this, listen to this. I heard, and I mentioned this at the Daily Power Parsha last week. I heard, says the serpent, that God has forbidden all of the trees in the garden. You can't eat any of them. And Eve's like, no, 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 that's fake news. Right? That's not real. That's, 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 not, that's not a real story. No. We're allowed to eat all of the trees except for one. Right? You heard the rumors wrong. The rumors you can't eat any of the trees. No, 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 no. That would be crazy. That would be reckless. Well, what else would we eat? You know, human beings weren't allowed to eat meat at that point until after the flood. Human beings were not permitted to eat any living creature, only vegetation. Human beings, Adam and Eve, they were all vegetarians. So... So, and the serpent said, I heard you can't eat any of the trees, from any of the trees. And Chava says, Eve says, not true. Um, not true at all. We can eat from all the trees except for one. And then she says, but not only can we not eat from it, we can't even touch it. And the serpent says, are you kidding me? You can't touch this tree. You can't eat from the tree. That doesn't make any sense. He says, listen to this. I'm going to read to you. I'll quote to you what the serpent says. Give me a moment here. Serpent, serpent, serpent. Here we go. The serpent said to the woman, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I'm paraphrasing. But now here's the quote. You will surely not die. Because she said that if we eat from the tree or even touch a tree, we're going to die. The serpent says, you're not going to die. God knows that on the day, this is a direct quote. God knows that on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, what's the serpent trying to say? What, do you th what, what, what jumps out at you? What's the serpent trying to say? Why, does, why did God tell you not to eat from the tree? Because to have pure, the purity to continue. But it, okay, but it sounds like, sounds like, God told you not to eat from it. Why? Because then your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Sounds like that God wanted to keep, 
the serpent is telling Eve, right, that God is trying to keep humankind down, right? Like, oh, God has the knowledge. God, you know, and knowledge is power. And historically, knowledge has been used, or lack thereof, to keep people down, right? Let's not provide education. Let's not provide literacy, etc., in order to keep a population down. This is historically historical, um, uh, sad and tragic historical fact. So the serpent is telling Eve, oh, by the way, yeah, you, you can't eat from the tree of knowledge. Listen to what it's called, tree of knowledge. You know what that means? You're not going to die. God doesn't want you to, ha to have the tree, to have the knowledge. Yeah? God does not want you to be knowers of good and evil. Okay. So, so then she eats from it, and then, she, and then Adam eats from it, and, and you know, the rest of the story plays out. Um, just to kind of close one loop before I open up another. Uh, and, and again, this is something that we've discussed before in, previous in, in other types of classes. The idea of the chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, or chapter 1 and then chapter 2 and 3, is there are really two narratives. Choose your own adventure. We can choose a narrative in which all goes well, or a narrative in which all goes askew. There's two visions for humanity. Chapter 1, everything ends well. Chapter 2 and 3, everything goes sideways. The message for us is we get to choose which story of creation we are living. Back to our story and the, and the serpent's um, persuasion. Serpent says you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. The Kabbalist explains something absolutely phenomenal. That the serpent was not just lying. The serpent was not just making up a story in order to get Adam and Eve to sin, which ultimately happened. The serpent was actually telling the truth. And that is that God had the, has the knowledge of good and evil. And God was trying to prevent Adam and Eve from having that knowledge. But one second, isn't that like keeping them down, keeping humanity down? So let's clarify that for a moment. And this is something that I explained a year ago when we had our JLI course called Secrets of the Bible. I believe this theme came up. So if it sounds familiar, think of it as a, as a good review and, 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 and we'll, you'll see the, the lesson that I want to extract from it today. The mystics explain the following with a parable. <coughs> Sometimes there's something that you can know and not get hurt by that knowledge. And sometimes there's a type of knowledge that when you know it, you will get hurt by that knowledge. Think of a child. This is probably the easiest example to give. Think of a child. If a child knew everything that's going on in the world, yeah, would that be healthy for the child or unhealthy for the child? A young child. Overwhelming. It's unhealthy. The child doesn't have the tools to process. I mean, anyway, we're dealing with, you know, even with the limited information that we're given as children, hopefully in a healthy environment, it's still difficult to process everything and to mature in a healthy fashion, let alone if you're hit with all sorts of adult, complicated, you know, uh, I don't know a better word to say, complicated themes and topics. So a child 
needs to be on some level protected from knowledge because that knowledge itself constitutes a potential challenge and downfall for that child. So, think about a child. Think about something like 9-11. Right? How do you explain 9-11 to a child? Do you explain 9-11 to a child? To a young child? And this is something educators, you know, you have, uh, God forbid, a tragedy in a community that happens, right? God forbid. Or a family. The question always is, how do you explain it to the children? What do you say? But I'll tell you what you don't say. You probably don't put it out there on the same level that you would to adults. Why not? Because you know that children aren't, again, at a certain age, aren't able to handle all of that. The same is true in a larger sense when it comes to this knowledge of good and evil. The way the mystics explain it, and the truth is, this is found in a beautiful discourse from the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, in his book Torah R, which is a collection of discourses on the Torah portion. So the Alter Rebbe explains that God can know good and evil without getting stuck in good and evil, without getting stuck in evil. God can know it and not get stuck in it. But human beings, once knowing evil, are susceptible to getting stuck in that place. It's like a vice that you never knew about. So it was never a thing. Then you find out about it. Now it's a thing, right? Knowledge, right? You didn't know it was... You, you never knew about this thing. So it was, never, it was never a thing. Now that you know about it, now it's a thing. So, so like this. So God knows good and evil on, on every, in every level because God remains. Oh, so here's the key. Even as God knows good and evil, God transcends the entire spectrum of challenge and that good and evil, uh, and, and certainly the evil. So therefore, God does not get stuck in the vice, in the evil. So God can know it without getting stuck in it. Whereas, the, the moral human being, knowing good and evil, now is faced with a conundrum. Once you've tasted, just kind of getting to the, to the, to the narrative, once you've tasted the forbidden fruit, Innocence is lost in a certain sense, right? Once you know it, and knowing in the biblical language, knowing means an intimate connection with something. Because later on in the same Torah portion, it says that Adam knew Eve, and then she conceived. She got pregnant. So knowing is not just, you know, I know theoretically that this exists. I know that this is on the table. Knowing, knowing means, knowing um, exudes the idea of, of, of a connection, so Adam and Eve, knowing good and evil, means that they now have a connection. Once you have a connection, once you've tasted the forbidden fruit, it's hard to go back. Yeah. So already that makes life more difficult because everything becomes a decision. Yes. As Don is saying, now life becomes more difficult. Why is it more difficult? Because everything is a decision. Because now, you know, you... The ignorance is bliss, right? You didn't know about it. It's not a challenge. Now that you know, now it's like, oh, great. 
Now I have to decide at every moment. Now everything is a crossroads, right? And I, I'm speaking like super vaguely. I'm not giving any specific examples, but we can all apply it on our own, whatever, you know, however we wish. But the idea here is that the serpent told the truth. And what's the truth? The truth is that there is a divine knowledge of good and evil that is pure and if you want to call it aloof, fine, whatever, but it's somewhat disconnected. Not that God's disconnected, but that that knowledge doesn't constitute an entrenchment. But whereas for the human being, it would cause a problem. So therefore, I'm going to read the serpent's words again. He says, God told you not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because he knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And all of that is true. But for the human being, it's a problem. For God, it's not a problem to know good and evil. But for us, it's a problem. It's like the same thing for adults and kids. For adults, knowing certain things is not a problem. But for kids, it's like think about, let's say, financial stress. Right? Financial stress. So adults hopefully can manage. You know, can manage, can figure it out. But, but, but to, 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 that a child should be aware of it could be devastating. Because the child doesn't have the ability to process it and doesn't know and, and, and therefore may be stuck with that anxiety and fear and not have a way out. Whereas the adult, hopefully, has the tools to be able to process that in a healthier way. Again, I'm just giving you an example of where one party could handle that knowledge and another party might not be able to handle that, no, that knowledge so well. So yes, God was trying to create an imbalance, not for the sake of holding on to power, but for the sake of protecting the naive, in a good way, the naivete of humankind. Now, what happens once we taste it for the forbidden fruit? Well, now we know good and evil. Game on. Now we have challenges. Right? So now we have, now at every moment we have a crossroads. Right? Because we know good, we know the opposite, and now we're faced with choices. But the core idea I want to bring out, and this is, I, I don't want this to get lost in the larger discussion because there's many ways to apply it, but the core idea that I want to bring out is the following. The closer we are to something, the more, I'm going to use the word invested, the more invested we are in it, the more, a Hebrew word would be noigea, the more it affects us, and it's hard to get out of that state. In other words, it's, it, it's real, it's personal, it affects us, and it's hard to separate ourselves from that thing. To use the example that Kabbalah gives regarding the intellectual power of dat, because there's Chachma, Bina, and Dat, Chabad, right? Chachma, Bina, and Dat. The third intellectual power, which is Dat, means intellectual connection. Not just I know something theoretically, but I am invested in that thing. I am, I, me and that thing, not only do I know it, I feel it. It's one with me, I'm one with it. So it's like the example, one example would be, it's like the difference between knowing about, let's say, God forbid, suffering in another part of the world versus, like, the difference between know, being aware of that versus feeling it. Feeling that and, 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 and truly empathizing and connecting with that pain to the point that it brings me to action. So in the negative sense, again, this is a negative sense of the story of Adam and Eve, what happened with that sin? And it's not some sort of magical hocus-pocus. They ate from a tree and they magically got this dot, this, uh, this awareness, this knowledge of, of good and evil. It literally happened because they tasted from the forbidden fruit. 
Once you taste the forbidden fruit, it's hard to regain the innocence lost. It's like you've, you've, you've tried it. How do you untry it? You know it's an option now. You know what it feels like to choose yourself over God. You know what it's like to choose selfishness over selflessness or pleasure over purpose. Now what? Now go back. Now, un now how do you undo the knowledge of self-serving lower forms of pleasure? How, how do you undo that? <laughs> what do you do? You, now you know it, and now you're stuck in it. So God knows it, but doesn't get stuck in it because God is not mortal and not stuck in human frailties. But we, once knowing it, now we're stuck in it. Does that make sense? Okay. But again, the key idea here is that the closer you are to something, the more invested, the more stuck, the more entrenched. Yeah? Questions, comments so far? Um, also, we didn't get to it yet, but the part where you said you will die, I mean, that was true too because we were given mortality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea of death, death is now visited upon, upon humankind. Now, give me one second. Hope that's okay. We have a door open, but I just, in case there's uh, some noise over there. Basically, the mortality is also explained in that discourse. The author explains in Torah R, he says that now that you have this kind of intimate connection, this closeness with evil, so if the human being lives forever, that means that that element, that trace of evil will also live forever, and God can't allow that to happen. Right? Once there's a connection with and a knowledge of the opposite of, of goodness, now there has to be an end to that so that that can segue. Anyway, all right, so that's the story from yesterday's Torah portion. And now I want to share with you a story from this upcoming Torah portion, which is the Torah portion of Noah, or Noah. Now, what happens in the Torah portion of Noah? Well, um, there is the Great Flood. And the Great Flood is, as we understand in Kabbalah, the Great Flood is less a punishment and more a cleansing reset. It's kind of like... Um, the cosmic mikvah, that is, sub, no, I mean, that's what it says in, in Kabbalah. It says that it's like this cosmic mikvah that is submerging the, the universe, the world, the, the world in this water. Just like there were waters originally hovering over the, over the earth. Waters covered the earth originally before they were separated out in the beginning of, of, of the world's creation. And that, and that kind of is the, the spawning of, of, of life on earth. So too, it was kind of like reset on that level to restart in a, in a cleansed way. Noah famously, humanity is saved. Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, eight people in the ark. Tradition has it that there was one person, Og, the jolly green giant. No, he wasn't jolly or green. But anyway, Og was hanging onto the boat from the outside, so he was also preserved. So nine people, almost had a minion. Anyway, no, it says that if you would have had ten people, the world could potentially have been saved. Because we know by Abraham, when he was negotiating with, with, with God uh, about destroying Sodom, right? So Adam, uh, Abraham says, if there are ten righteous people, spare the, uh, spare the city. So there's, there's a source that ten would do it. Noah built the ark for 120 years. It's quite a tradition. Um, I always joke that he must have been Jewish if it took him that long to build. Anyway, not, not all Jews don't know how to build. I know, I get it, but uh, I'm, just, I'm just, you know, I guess I'm reflecting my own sukkah building experiences. Anyway, so it took him 120 years to build the sukkah. To, uh, sorry, to build the, the ark. There you go, Freudian slip. To build the ark. And um, 
and he was spared. He, didn't, he wasn't able to recruit another person, another member of the minion. He had nine from the beginning to the end. And thus it was, the, the world is destroyed. He survived. You can imagine lots of trauma that went along with that. If we were putting Noah on a couch, it would be a very complicated experience. What did that, what, what's the, so first of all, there's the trauma of, of, of seeing destruction. Then there's survivor's guilt, right? I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of potential stuff with Noah and his family. Anyway, after he gets off the ark, something very um, interesting, troubling, perplexing happens. All right, there's not much that we know about Noah post-flood. We know that he gets off the ark. He brings sacrifices to God. God promises never to bring a flood to destroy the world again. God commands Noah to populate the world. And, uh, yeah, oh, and for the covenant, uh, the sign of the covenant, never destroy the world through a flood, is the rainbow. All right, then the Torah says a very bizarre story. I'm just going to read. All right. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. From them, the entire earth was populated. Okay. Noah a master of the soil, so clearly he had a green thumb, is that what they call it, a green thumb, yeah. Anyway, degraded himself by planting a vineyard. The first thing he planted was a vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself in his tent. So, he plants a vineyard. I'm assuming it took some time. I'm just assuming it wasn't like, plant the vineyard, got wine, there right, he planted a vineyard, Grapes, wine, fermenting, whatever the process is, and becomes drunk and uncovered himself in the tent. So Cham, one of his sons, the father of Canaan, looked at his father's nakedness. He publicly, he publicly related this to his two brothers, right? Dad's drunk and unclothed in the tent. That's what he's like broadcasting to his brothers. Shem and Yafet, the other two brothers, took a garment and placed it on both of their shoulders. They walked backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned backwards so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay. That's the story. So what's going on? So the Torah tells us that Noah gets drunk and he's uncovered in the tent. And then what happens? Cham sees him, says to the brothers, guys, dad's in the tent, not wearing clothes. And what do they do? They come with a garment, they walk backwards, they turn their face around, and they cover their father. Two different reactions. What happens when you see someone? What happens when you see something? What do you do? Right? Do you broadcast it, make a big deal about it? Or do you just address, if it's a, something that needs to be addressed, do you just address it? This is the difference in reaction between Cham and the two brothers. I want to mention a few things and get into a psychological teaching that the Rebbe gave on, on these verses. So let me point out something. The Torah says that they not only walk backwards, but their faces were turned backwards. And the commentary is, what does that mean? Why, why the double expression backwards, backwards? They walk backwards, their face were backwards. Like, what's, no. They walk backwards, right? So, if right, so they walk backwards, 
right? And then, as they got close, you would think they would turn around to cover. No, they didn't. Even when they covered their father, they kept their face turned the other way, not to look. That's how much they respected their father. And what about Cham? Did he respect his father? No. He put it out on, uh, you know, whatever. He, he blasted it out. Take a look. Dad's naked. Right? That was, that was the message. So the Rebbe quotes a teaching from, I think it's the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. And the Baal Shem Tov says that whenever a person sees a flaw in someone else, it's really a mirror of themselves. Right? What you see in someone else is really a reflection of what's going on within you. So if you see someone has a flaw, and you're like, look at that flaw. So you know, ah, it's not their flaw, it's my flaw. That's why I see it. But of course the question is, why can't it just be their flaw? Why does that have to be my flaw? Who says it's my flaw? What, I can't objectively notice their flaw? The answer is yes, you could. But how you notice it will dictate whether or not you're stuck in it or not. If you notice a flaw, and all you see is something that needs to be fixed, and you respectfully go about helping that person fix it, then it's not your issue. In other words, you're not stuck in it. Shame and Yafet, the other two brothers, their father is unclothed, he's inebriated, he's not wearing clothing. All right, we love our father, we're going to respectfully cover him, we're going to take care of him. That's it. No, no drama. No, no, because there's no entrenchment. But, but Cham, right, Cham, the, the middle brother, he gets all, look what's going on. He points it out. You know, we call, there's a word that we use today to, to, um, to refer to this. It's called being triggered. You ever hear that word? Being triggered? What does it mean when somebody's triggered, right? Trigger itself is now a trigger word. What does it mean when someone's triggered? Somebody says, ah, I got triggered by something. You know what it means? There's something inside me that's getting triggered by something that's happening. In other words, if, if there was nothing in me that is struggling with something related to that thing, then I wouldn't get triggered by it. I would see it for what it is, see it objectively, and be able to help or not help or whatever it is, but I wouldn't get triggered by it. If I get triggered by it, the question number one is not what they did is wrong, they triggered. The question is, one second, what is it within me? It's easy to point fingers, you triggered, right? The, question, the real question is, what is, in it, what is within me that I need to, to think about that is making me triggered? But that's why someone who has experienced addiction and substance abuse has the insight and the knowledge to be effective to help other people with that, with that problem. Because they've worked through it. Right. Correct. Right. Right. Nina said that somebody who has who's in recovery, who's been through uh, struggle with addiction, is more apt to help someone else because they know the struggle. And they, exactly. So, yeah. They also understand the triggers. They understand the triggers, right, yes. Right. This would be really random, but when, is there, is there any mission or any story about what triggered cop? Is, has anybody tried to write about like, what, what was about seeing Noah in that state that made him react that way? 
as, as I said, like, was there probably a personal story with him? Yeah, right. So that's that, that's the million dollar question. So it's interesting because in in the talk of the Reb about this, there's a, it's a very long, it's so it's so deeply psychological and spiritual as well, but it's it's such a powerful idea. But he doesn't get into the the uh, the idea of analyzing why Cham, like what was it about Cham specifically of all the three brothers that he, that he struggled with like what what area did he struggle that when he saw his father that evoked it for him and his response was his only reaction was not to take care of it but to say look what's going on this is crazy this is ridiculous look at that like he couldn't deal with he couldn't help he had to broadcast. Right? What was it? I'm not answering your question. What I'm saying is I don't know the answer, but it's a really good question. Right? Matt's question is, well, what, so what was it about Cham? Why couldn't he just see the issue? Now, we know this in our lives. Right? We know this in our lives. Some, you see something wrong. I said, okay. It's not, so you identify it as wrong, and that's it. And either you try to f- fix it, or you, or you can't fix it, whatever it is, you try your best. It is what it is. But sometimes you find yourself stuck on something. I can't believe it. How could they have done that? Why did they do it? And you need to tell people about it. And you need to, right? And the question is, that we have to ask ourselves is, in that moment, why are we getting so caught up in this? Why are we getting so caught up in the problem? Right? And perhaps, like the Baal Shem Tov said, when we notice a flaw in someone else, not just notice, when we can't see anything other than the flaw in someone else, that usually means that that is a mirror to something within ourselves. The way the Rebbe explains it, explains that this is the scene of the Baal it's this is the greatest gift that God has given us, the gift to see ourselves. Because otherwise, we would have a blind spot to our own flaws. Thank God for the fact that we see others with similar flaws that trigger us, that clue us in to what we need to work on within ourselves. Does that make sense, what I just said? Yeah? Turns out that that person struggling with something I don't want to make it sound selfish, but is to my personal advantage, my personal benefit as well. Because now I know this is something that I also struggle with. This is something that also, for some reason, is triggering me. And therefore, I need to deal with this. I need to somehow address this on my own. If I can't get past the problem in someone else, it means there's something within me that is connected with it, struggling with it. Or, it, 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 I'm not going to say necessarily it's a one-for-one struggle. They're struggling with it, and, and, I, and I see the flaw, and I can't get over the flaw. It means I'm struggling with the exact same thing. It's not necessarily one, one-to-one. It's not exactly you know, copy-paste. But there's something about that experience that is, tr- that is triggering me, that is touching a part of me deep inside to the point that I can't get past it. And that means there's internal work to do. So, is it about them at this point? It's not about them. It's really about me. It's about me and the work that I need to do. This is what I would call a mature approach. This is a mature approach. This is saying, look, I recognize that when something triggers me, there's something within me that requires some inner work. And by the way, I'm not blaming myself. Right? I'm, not, I'm not saying, oh, I'm a terrible person, I'm a bad person. I'm not blaming myself. What I'm saying is I recognize in a healthy way that, there, that, that there's something that I need to work on so let me work on this. This is a healthy approach. The unhealthy approach is Cham, who's not even aware of the fact that he's doing anything wrong. Right? Cham says, look, dad's naked in the tent and inebriated. Unbelievable. Look at this guy. Let's put it out there for everyone. And the other brothers, 
They don't say anything. They just do something to address the problem. Why? Because it didn't, it didn't evoke any emotions in them. It didn't trigger anything. All they saw was a problem that needed solving. Example in parenting, right? Here's a parenting example. You take your kid to the supermarket. And the kid, as children sometimes do, they, for whatever reason, they're tired, they're hungry, a combination of the two, and they begin to melt down, right? This is, a, this is a very typical scenario. Am I wrong here? Right, children melting down in a supermarket. It's happened once or twice. It's happened once or twice. How does the parent react? Does the parent get angry and get very worked up? The question is, why? The child is worked up because they're tired and hungry. Why are you worked up? Because the child's worked up? Again, let's unwind this for a second. Why are you worked up? Yeah, oh. So now it's a, right. So that's one of the that's one of the major reasons, right? Now it's oh, because now it's creating a scene, and now I'm embarrassed that my kid is da 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 da. If we would be, and and the truth is, everyone gets it. Everyone knows, kids a kid having a you know going through some not a big deal. It's not like. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I would hope that that would be the healthy reaction. A child is, you know, struggling with something and not, you know, and, and not look at the parent, you know, in any, in any uh, you know, horrible way. But, you know, it's, it's, it's what we, it's how we internalize that as parents that blows, that can, can, that can uh, blow that up into something bigger than what it is. Susan. I was going to say exactly what she said. Oh, okay. I, I, I was going to say that um, it's like this embarrassment. Right. You know, like everything's being exposed, you know, yeah. to the parent. But I was thinking about exactly what you were saying about um, a mature reaction, you know, to kind of look at yourself if you're being triggered or whatever. Right. Um, I was thinking about the, the, the brothers that responded by walking backwards. They, to me, that's a mature reaction, a mature... Um, right way to respond to things that need to be fixed. You know, yeah. Like an immaturity in um, um, bringing in drama and a maturity in the brothers we're finding a solution to the problem. Yeah. 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 So Susan's saying um, that the difference in Ham and the brothers is really a mature response versus a not. But it's, it's not just the maturity. It's really about, and that comes from either being stuck in something or not being stuck in something, walking backwards and just addressing, you know, just covering dad is, is helping dad. It's what dad needs, right? Chum, for whatever reason, couldn't bring himself to do that. He just, he couldn't get past. Look what dad did. Look what dad did. Can you believe it? Dad's drunk and naked in the tent. Unbelievable. It's like, why, are you, why, why does that create such a situation by you, right? If not, I don't know. Matt and I are going to come up with the, uh, like the, the, the source of the whatever. I don't know what it was, but he just couldn't, couldn't. He, so here's my point. He was so stuck. Again, this idea of, about Adam and Eve and the fruit and the, and the, and the knowledge. When you're, when, you're, when you're stuck in something, when you're closely connected with something, it's hard to extract yourself from it. Right? 
It's hard to extract yourself from that situation. If, once you know evil, it's hard to not know evil. When you, when you know this whatever, whatever you want to call it, this trigger, it's hard to not be triggered because it's your trigger. Yeah. I'm just going to say this as an aside. Yes. But I feel like we're training people to be triggered, training people to look for microaggressions. I know this because I'm a teacher and this is, this is what we talk about and it's almost like um, misapplying in some ways people's anxieties and frustrations if they feel that and saying, hey, this is actually what you're feeling. You're feeling this trigger right. from this. So, you know, so I, I just wanted to say, I wanted to put that out there. Right. So Susan's saying that she feels like maybe we're now, training children and people to like look for triggers and microaggressions. But I, I would say like this, I think I, I, I would take like maybe a, a slightly different angle on that. And I think that that being aware of triggers is good as long as we're, we're looking inward and then committing ourselves to do the work, to work on ourselves in those areas. Because just to, to point out a trigger, as, what's the utility? That's like saying, look, this person's wrong, that person's wrong, which has also a benefit, but it's more beneficial when we're not the ones that are triggered. It's more beneficial when the person that's not triggered is covering dad than the one who's triggered saying, look, dad needs to be covered. It's right. So, so to deal with the problem, it's easier somebody who's not triggered by it. The one who's triggered by it and I, it, it, the, the, the real work is the internal work. It's not looking at what did you do wrong, but it's what is it about me that, um, that, gets so, that gets bothered by this? And it could be there's a valid answer, by the way. I'm not saying that there's not a valid answer sometimes. It could be a very valid answer. What do you mean, why did I get triggered? Because you offended me. So why does that trigger me? Okay, I mean, we could always, always keep on asking why, and, and, and sometimes we'll get to a very good answer, and, and, and it's justified. I'm not saying that trigger, being triggered is not justified. What I'm saying is that it's important, I think, to recognize that what, what affects us is partly the external stimuli, but primarily what we're going through ourselves at that moment. That's really the key of what's going on. Yeah. It, just reflecting back on Adam and Eve and reflecting on Tom, you know, I keep coming up with the, the phrase that's so human. Right. It just feels so human, and yet, so it makes me think of the whole idea of original sin as a, such a foundation. It's sort of the default. And actually, the, re, the reaction of the other brothers is a much more elevated. It's what we strive for. Right. But the common denominator in the way most people behave is to gossip and to blab and to, right. Yeah. Yeah. Look yeah. at the look at this one. Look at this person. Right. Look what they did. Right. Nina's saying is that when you look at these stories in Beratius and Noah, the first two Torah portions, they're very human. They tell this. They tell our story. And yeah, the the Torah is nothing if not a a guidebook on life and sometimes by, sometimes by telling us what to do and sometimes by telling us what not to do. And we're modeled, you know, both, both ways. Yeah, Ed. Um, so Tom's response clearly is a reflection of his issue. But what I'm thinking about and what would love to hear your opinion is, is his issue 
that he is, in fact, fearful of what he's just seen, and he's incapable of responding, and he's asking for help because he's paralyzed in the sense of, like, Dad's drowning out in the lake. Right. I don't know what to do. Can you guys help me? Right. Or is it more malicious? Is he saying, can you believe Dad? Right. That's like family dysfunction. Let's talk crap about other members of the family. Right. Right. What level of... What That's what the holidays are for. I'm kidding. So, <laughs> can you wait? Could you? Can you guys? Uh, hold on. Let me turn to our online crew. Can you guys hear? Um, you guys could hear what Ed said. No. Some yes. Some no. Okay. Ed asked a very good question. He said, "Clearly, Chum is. I, I don't think you used the word triggered. Uh, what did you say? Clearly, Chum is." Well, he's got an issue around this, which is why he's talking about it as opposed to just addressing. Right. So, but, but Ed's question is, is it that he's, he sees something that's traumatic and, and he's not sure how to act, right? He's like not sure, like akin to dad's drowning in the lake and I don't know what to do. So I need help and I, I'm not capable of helping. Or is it more malicious, like look at what dad's doing, just talking about, talking negatively about a loved one, which, to which I joke, that's why we have holidays to, anyway, and family gatherings. But that was a joke. So that's a very good question. I would not know the answer on my own, but the commentaries, pretty much all of them, and this goes back to the Talmud and the Midrash, they all say that there was a malicious um, intent. Now, could there have been a version of the story where it was the former, the other option? Sure. But, and the Midrash and the Talmud, they're not making our belief in our tradition is not that they made up back stories, but they knew the stories because these were family stories. These are, these are chronicles that were passed down and that at some point were written down. So the, the story that we have is that it was a malicious thing. In fact, according to some traditions, Chum actually assaulted his father while naked, which I didn't necessarily want to mention, but because I think that's going to add more dynamics than I'm prepared to, uh, to, to, to address right now. But it, there was, it seems clear from the story that we have that it was the second option, not the first. But you're right. There is a possibility where someone is reacting loudly, right, and animatedly, and it's not because they're, it's, I mean, it's still them. It's still them not knowing how to react or not having the tools. Again, it's not blaming. This is just reflecting inward and saying, if I was better prepared, if I had the tools, I would have been able to react and address, but I didn't, which is not my fault. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but at least I'm learning about myself in this process, which is really at the core of what the Baal Shem Tov says. When you see someone in something else, someone in some, when you see something in someone else, this is a self-reflective opportunity. We can look inside and learn about ourselves in how we react to that thing in that person, as opposed to thinking it's all about them. Look at how, you know, bad they are or how, you know, whatever. Whatever it is about the other person, this is now an opportunity to reflect. Yeah. I think you've talked about this lesson in other stories. I think this is the first time I've heard it been applied to this particular story with Noah. This needs different ways to, like, reframe situations. A lot of, I think from the brother's perspective, a lot of times they can see, like, Tom doing what he's doing and their thought could either be, but well, why is Tom being such a bad person? 
first of all, thought is like, wow, dude, Kham has some things to work out. I feel bad for him. Right. Like two different ways to reframe the situation. There's a lot of things like, because the second way is, is de-emphasizing me. But now I'm thinking about like a normal life. Like let's say if you go to a store and an employee treats you badly. You think, oh, why did that employee treat me so badly? Right. Versus what's going on in that person's life. Right. It's yeah. a different way to like, I guess both situations still, not necessarily wrong right away, but the other way, the emphasize yourself, I think is a better way of looking at the situation with right. applies with this, how you're telling the story. Let me, so let me just share that because I think, I think that's great. So Matt mentioned that part of this also touches on the difference between making, making it about us versus recognizing. So like seeing Cham, like if we were reflecting now on Cham's actions, like we're learning about the story, how do we react to him? Do we get all judgy on him? Or do we say, okay, something was going on with him and that's why he was triggered, but we're understanding that, we're, we're compassionately understanding that he was struggling with something and that's what he, why he did what he did. It's almost like a meta version of what we're doing, applying it to the guy who wasn't able to deal with his trigger in a healthy fashion and say, look, I'm not gonna get triggered by his trigger. I'm just going to understand that that was a thing. So the example that Matt gave was like you go to a store and somebody, somebody treats you, uh, you know, negatively. Instead of getting offended, it's like, okay, I guess that guy's having a bad day. So, yeah, you know. I about this last year. I think, I think this happened after, I forgot exactly what talk you gave, but you, I remember that message was given by something that you said. Yeah. And it happened very shortly afterwards that my boss was just being really mean to me one day. Right. And I had think like, what's going on? And then later I found out to talking to people that she was having back problems, that she was out of pain meds. Wow. And also her child was sick. Mm. It was like, oh, okay, she's hurt and her child's sick. Right. That's why she's in a little bit of a crying and, a, and a, So Matt shared a personal anecdote that basically went to his, I, I shared this idea in a different context uh, maybe about a year ago or something. And uh, he had a personal experience where somebody was not treating him, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a positive fashion. And he found out later they were going through personal challenges. So I, I, I probably shared in the context of what Rabbi Label Wolf once said when he spoke by us at a dinner some years ago. He said, you see somebody that's, um, that's lying on the ground, you know, with a broken arm, crying in pain. You know that they're not shouting at you. They're just crying out for pain. But when somebody, when they're in emotional pain, when they cry out, when they shout at, shout at you, Somehow we, we, we get offended by it and we take it personally, we, we internalize it. When in fact, it's more of a reflection of where they are as opposed to where we are. The point is like this. What's common to me, at least the way I'm, I'm looking at it this morning, what's common to me, what's common about both of these stories, the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Noah and his sons, um, is the idea of entrenchment it's hard to get out of what you're stuck in. That's the bottom line. Once you know something, it's hard to unknow it. Um, if you're struggling with something, it's hard to not struggle with it. I mean, once you, when, when, it's, when it's personal, it's personal. And that could be for the negative, it could be for the positive. The positive, the positive, the positive angle on this is that when we are in a, let's speak about a relationship now. When you're in a relationship and you're connected with that person in the relationship, as we've said the last few weeks, what they do affects you, for better or for worse. Right? That's the way it is. So what their actions will affect you. Why? Because you're not detached. It's kind of like God 
can see the good and evil theoretically and be like, yeah, okay, I could see it and I'm not in my intention. But a human being tasting of evil, that's it. Now, you know, the good stuff affects us in a positive way, the negative stuff affects us in a negative way. And it's hard to get out of that. When it comes to relationships, for example, give me a second, I see some... When, when we talk about relationships, the closer we are, the more embedded we are, the more connected we are in a relationship, the more the other affects us for better or for worse. Like I said a few weeks ago, and this is the idea that I want to circle back to for, our, uh, for, the, for what we're going to be studying inside today in chapter 3 of Discourse 11. The pain that exists in a relationship is a sign of closeness, right? When we feel hurt in a relationship, it's because we care. It's because what they do or what they did affects us because we're invested. If we weren't invested, then we wouldn't care. We would be detached. If we're detached, then it becomes no drama. When there's drama, it means investment. And this is a theme, an important theme that we are going to circle back to in a moment. But first, I wanted to, I just noticed over here a few chats. Um, when you tell a child not to do something, they always do it. This is true. This is true probably regarding um, Adam and Eve, not to, not to eat from the tree of knowledge. Correct. That was a pretty easy next step to figure out. They're going to eat from it. Um, Alex says, can one be triggered to engage in Lashon Hara? I mean, yes. I mean, can we be triggered to gossip? Sure. But again, the idea here is, the big idea that I'm, that I'm trying to share is that, look, let's not absolve ourselves of personal responsibility. Sure, something happened and we might feel the urge to talk about it. The question is, should we? And, and the more we slow it down, the more we can think about, hold on, is this something that's a healthy reaction or just a natural reaction, which may not be healthy. And that's what it comes down to. It's like, is this a, a healthy reaction or an unhealthy reaction? Just because it's a natural reaction doesn't mean that it's necessarily the healthiest thing. So not all triggers are holy. I think that's the, uh, that's the big idea. Okay, let's now, wow, let's get into an incredible story. Okay, I'm going to hand out these. Thank you very much. Um, this is going to be the final leg of our journey of chapter 11, and uh, Discourse 11, and really, I'll be honest, this is the last piece of this type of uh, folly that we're addressing, which is the folly of, I'm going to do what I want and I'll be okay. All right, thank you. So, to do this, I'm going to circle back to what I wrote in the email last night, and I hope you guys got the email. Basically, there's an incredible story that took place 2,500 years ago. And in order to understand what happened, we have to understand the history. What's the history? The history is this took place after the destruction of the first temple. So let's just run through a quick, uh, a quick history lesson. The Jewish people left Egypt in the year 2448. Okay? They left Egypt in the year 2448. They wandered for 40 years in the desert to 2488 in the Jewish years. They then went into, the Moses passed away. That's where the, the five books of Moses end. 
and Joshua leads the people into the land of Israel. They conquer, they, they conquer and settle the land. It takes 14 years to do that. And after that, there is some measure of Jewish sovereignty for hundreds of years. At the beginning, there was no Jewish king. There were just, prof, there were just um, leaders and judges and other things. Ultimately, there's a Jewish monarchy that is established. King Saul, King David, King Solomon, other kings. But at a certain point in time, corruption begins to set in. And around 2,500 years ago, the first temple that Solomon built is destroyed. Who destroys it? The Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, destroys the temple. So that's what's going on about 2,500 years ago. At that time, the Jews, the temple was destroyed and most Jews were exiled to Bavel, Babylonia. And in Bavel, there was a prophet that was with them, who was exiled with them. Yecheskel Hanavi, Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel, right, are we familiar with Ezekiel? He had this mean bread recipe. Anyway. Which may or may not be true. Who knows? No. Anyway, so Ezekiel, yeah, Yecheskel. He was the prophet with the Jewish people at the time of that exile. We'll call it, I guess, the first exile or the exile after the first temple's destruction. Babylonia, he was in Bavel, he was in Babylonia. The story goes, this is in chapter 20 of the book of Ezekiel. The elders come to the prophet and they say to him the following. Clearly... God has kicked us out of the house. Clearly, the relationship is over. So I guess, they said to Ezekiel, I guess we're done. I guess this is finished. No more Jews, no more Judaism, right? I guess we're like all the other nations. That's what they said to the prophet, to Ezekiel. And they wanted to find out, because he was a prophet, you know, channel a response from God. Are we done? Like, is this it? Did God, like we had a good relationship. It lasted for, the temple stood 400 years, and before that, another few hundred years. Whatever, six, seven, eight hundred years, we had a nice run together. But it's over. We got kicked out of the house. Temple destroyed. Lots of people were killed by the, by the Babylonians, right? Exiled out of our land. That's it. And Ezekiel comes back with the word of God that basically says, you're misunderstanding this idea. You're misunderstanding the whole story. Let's read this powerful drama inside together. I'm going to share my screen. Let's pull this up. Um, I'm going to read this. We are on page number, hold on. This is page 178, chapter 3. I'm going to begin. This explains the verses from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20. This explains the verses. What rises upon your spirit, upon your mind, Rashi, shall not come to pass. Ezekiel says to the people, what you are suggesting, what you're feeling, shall not come to pass. That you say we shall be like the nations, which Rashi explains we shall cast off his yoke from our shoulders since he has rejected us. Like the families of the lands to serve wood and stone. In other words, Ezekiel responds to them and says, no, what you're thinking, that God has kicked you out and therefore idolatry for the masses, we're done with this monotheism thing, that is not correct. That shall not come to pass. 
I swear, says God through the prophet Ezekiel, if need be, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm and pouring wrath to annihilate the wicked and rebellious, shall I rule over you. God basically says, you're not going anywhere, even if I have to force you to be in this relationship. Listen to this. The people come to Ezekiel and they say, so are we done? Are we out? And what does God say through the prophet? Not only are we not done, <laughs> I'm going to make sure that we're not done. So the Midrash Tanchuma states the following. When Israel, this is now the indented large paragraph, middle of 178. When Israel desired to cast off the burden of the oath of God during the time of Ezekiel. What does that mean to cast off the burden of the oath of God? That means they wanted to get rid of this whole thing called Judaism. Right? They, they decided, they thought, you can imagine that's, you know, maybe they had grounds to think that because of what had happened to them, their trauma that they had just lived through. But they were intending to say, okay, so we're done. No more Judaism. No more Jews. So when that happens, so what is written? The Medrash asks rhetorically, Men have come from the elders of Israel to inquire of God. That's how the chapter begins. Chapter 20 of Ezekiel begins. So the men have come from the elders of Israel to inquire of God. They asked of him. So they asked of Ezekiel. They phrased it this way. Listen, listen to the way that they framed the question. They gave a parable. If a Kohen, a priest, purchases a slave, may the slave, the ser really the servant, if, if a Kohen purchases a servant, may the servant eat truma. Truma is, let me explain what this is. Truma is special gift that the people gave to the Kohen because the Kohen didn't have a job other than serving the people and, and God. So the people gave the Kohen Shruma. The, the law was that a Kohen can eat Shruma, a Kohen's family can eat Shruma, and anyone employed in the household, including a servant, which means basically like, you know, someone who works in the house full-time. So someone who's full-time in the house can eat, can eat the Shruma. Oh, sorry. So that was the question. If Kohen is a slave, may eat Shruma. So Ezekiel replied, he replied, he may eat. But listen to this. So they, they reply, they continued, but what happens if the Kohen then sells him to an Israelite? Yeah? What happens if he gets a new job? Right? Does he not leave his jurisdiction? In other words, does he not now no longer get the truma? He's gone. He's out of the house. So Ezekiel replied, correct. He does leave the custody of the Kohen for the Israelites. In other words, he's no longer in the care in the home of the Kohen, and thus he no longer is able to eat the truma. The elders concluded, we too have already gone out of his custody. In other words, God took us in into his home, into Israel, the holy land, the temple. But then God has now sold us out to the nations. We've gone out of his custody. Let us be like all the nations. The Midrash basically explains that it wasn't, it wasn't just... Uh, you know, hey, let's be like the nations. There was an intellectual framework for this and obviously an emotional framework and a traumatic framework for this of explaining where they came, where they were coming from in this request. They were saying, as long as you're in the Kohen's house, you're like a Kohen. When you leave the Kohen's house, you're no longer a Kohen. Different jurisdiction. When we were in Israel with the temple and all things were good, we were with God. Now that God sent us out, clearly we're meant to belong to the other nations. Does that make sense? Okay. Ezekiel then spoke to Israel. So then we have, that was the question. Now Ezekiel responds, what rises upon your spirit shall not come to pass. In other words, what you're thinking, what you're suggesting, not going to happen. I swear, says God, if need be by a mighty arm, dot, dot, dot. He explained to the, this is still the message. Ezekiel explained to the people, 
so long as the Kohen has not sold him, the slave is still in his possession. In other words, as long as he hasn't been sold, still belongs to the Kohen. And then he turns to the people and says, you have not been sold for money. As it says in Isaiah, a different prophet, thus says God, for nothing you were sold. Okay, so they were sold, but what, sold out on some level, but for nothing. It's only if you're sold for something that you're sold. You're sold for nothing, you're not really sold, you still belong to God. To establish this, to establish you this day as his nation, he will be your, this is from Deuteronomy, God has already declared on uh, forever that, he, that you are his nation and he will be your God as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God swore not to renege on what he swore to your forefathers. In Deuteronomy already, God tells the people, tells the Jewish people, that what I told your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what I told your forefathers, that you will be mine forever, that is still in effect and that doesn't change even with the exile, even with the destruction of the temple, the exile to Babylonia, nothing's changed in the relationship, even though you might think it did. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Isn't it a crazy story? Yeah. So there was a time in history where Jews believed that Judaism was over. And Ezekiel, and God obviously, but Ezekiel tra um, um, transmitted the message that literally preserved Judaism. The fact that we're still here is because is is due to this response. The Talmud happens. Everything happens. Yeah, right. Everything happens because we, because we have this knowledge that we that we are still relevant. That we are still Jews. Let's continue. The idea that occurred to them back. So that's all from the message. Back to. Um, to to, the, to our Kabbalistic text. The idea that occurred to them to be like all the nations. Oh, so now he explains this mystically. What they were suggesting was that they should be like the other nations that are, as we explained previous weeks, that are able to get their sustenance, vitality, spiritual energy from the level of makif, from the, um, from the level that's open to all. Right? So that, that, let's get back inside. The idea that occurred to them to be like all the nations and receive their nurture from the Sitra Akhra, from the other side, through receiving from the supernal Makif, this shall not be. That's the dialogue. The dialogue is really on a spiritual level. What they were wanting was to get the spiritual blessings or to get the blessings without needing to work for it, without needing to do the work. Just get the blessings without the work. So I swear, says God, with a mighty hand will I rule over you. You are already bound. Let's continue page 180. You are already bound to me by an oath. Israel are God's portion, for he chose them, and they chose him. And they are specifically of, their, of the inner nature. I'm going to explain what that means in a second. They are incapable of receiving the vitality and beneficence, beneficence from the externality of the Machavists do all the nations. They must get from the inwardness through fulfilling Torah and mitzvot, which means like this. God is saying... We're in a relationship. What do you mean? You think we're strangers? You want to get like all the, like, like everyone gets, everyone gets. But there's a relationship here. And part of that, I'm invested in you and you're invested in me. And part of that means that when you do something that's not right, it hurts. And you know what? There are consequences. That doesn't mean you're not in a relationship. That means you are in a relationship. The pain, the hurt, the consequence means that you are in a relationship. Let's continue. Next paragraph. Due to the inner love 
from the essence of the infinite light to the, the inwardness of the Makkah as noted, he compels them to accept upon themselves the yoke of his kingdom if need be by mighty hand. Now, obviously, it's not, there's no, no such thing as com real com uh, uh, being compelled. It's not like the real compulsion. It's not like God forces us to, you know, to do a mitzvah. That doesn't actually happen. There is free choice granted. But the point is, lest we think, lest we think that um, what we do doesn't matter. God does not care. This relationship is over. God is expressing the fact, no, the relationship is not over. It's still in existence. What you do still matters. What I do still matters to you, etc. It's kind of like the, the, uh, the person who came to the Rebbe after the Holocaust and said, you know, I, where was God in the Holocaust? And, and I, I'm so angry at God, I don't believe in God anymore. And the Rebbe said, the fact that you're angry means you do believe. Yeah. If you didn't believe in God, who are you angry at? Are you with me on this? The fact that you're angry means there's a supposition that there is a God. It, it, you're hurt because you have a relationship. And you're wondering, when you, when, when you were vulnerable, how come the one that you love, how come the one that you, that, that you care about, that supposedly cares about you, why weren't they there? That doesn't mean you don't believe. That means you do believe and you were hurt. You understand? Like, if somebody says, yeah, I understand how the Holocaust can happen because there's no God, there's no, there's no, there's no morality, there's no absolute justice in the world, just, you know, the, it's, a, it's a jungle and sometimes this stuff happens. If that's what someone says, you can't argue. But if somebody says, I'm bothered by the fact, how could God allow this to happen, right? So, so, so I reject God. In that rejection, there's actually an, a, a, an affirmation. Mm -hmm. You with you? Yeah, I just heard a saying recently, the opposite of of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Oh, that's exactly it. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. In other words, when, and maybe hate's like a, a, a trigger word, but when somebody gets worked up about something, right, it doesn't mean they don't love. It means they love, they're, they're invested, because it hurt. If it hurt, that means that there's an investment. That means there's a connection. If there's no connection, there's no pain. It's like, think about the body. You know, a, a body part that's connected, when it gets hurt, you hurt. You cut off a fingernail, right? It's no longer cut off hair. So someone pulls your hair, it hurts. But you cut off hair, you could pull it, it doesn't hurt anymore. Right? Why? Because it's not connected to you anymore. So what's connected either feels good or it feels pain. Both, but both are, both are signs of connection, right? It's the indifference by the way, it says that was the, that the indifference is the greatest kleba. The greatest evil force in life is indifference, is apathy. Cynicism, apathy, coldness. It says that's what Amalek was. Amalek was, Amalek is like the nation that attacked the Jews after the Exodus that symbolizes like the worst enemy of the Jewish people. It's not like an, an ancient nation, only it's, it's an internal reality, the Kabbalists say, because Amalek is the numerical value of suffix, which means doubt. Amalek is that inner voice that says, eh, don't be so excited. <laughs> no big deal. Oh, you're getting so excited about this mitzvah? Ah, doesn't matter. It's, the, it's that cold indifference that we have to fight against internally. Amalek is not an external enemy. It's an internal challenge we have to work against. But anyway, getting back to the story. The people believed that God had cut them out. And if God cut them out, well, then they're out. And Ezekiel says, you're not out. Don't you realize what's been going on here? It's because God loves you, that he's pained by your actions. You're still very much in, and God is going to make sure you stay in. The Major states, let's continue, in the middle of uh, page 180. 
the indented paragraph now. The Medrash Rabbi states, Though you are not my people... Oh, this is... Okay. Okay, to understand this, it, it really would help if we had the original verse. The original verse says something like this, You are not my people, I shall not be with you. Wow. That sounds like rejection. You're not my people, I shall not be with you, it's out. But the Medrash reimagines the verse completely differently. Or re not reinterprets, the Medrash explains what the verse really means. Though you are not my people, for you wish to separate from me. In other words, you're acting indifferent to me. I shall not be with you, meaning I shall not agree with you. I don't agree that we're done. Rather, for by force you will be my people. This is the sense of what you intend shall not come to pass. If need be by mighty hand, I shall rule over you. We learn here how beloved Israel before God. It sounds harsh. Are you kidding me? It's not harsh. It's loving. It's someone who says, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on you. You're telling me that you want to be done. You're telling me that you want out. I'm not giving up on you. I'm still in this relationship. I'm still loving you. Again, look at that last line. When the people say, When the people believe that you are not my people, in other words, when the people, when the Jewish people believe that they're no longer connected, God says, I don't agree with you. I'm not with you on that, on that idea. And that tells us how beloved Israel before God. It sounds, again, it's, it may sound harsh. God is saying, I'm going I'm to be your God with a, with, a, with a mighty hand. That's an, act, that's, a, that's, a, that's an expression of love. This is due, here we go, let's continue. This is due to the inner love that is relevant to Israel specifically and because of which they are compelled and because of which they are compelled for their own good, even if it means using a harsh, harsh manner, God forbid. It's kind of like parenting. Because you love your kid, you're not going to let them go down a path of destruction. Hopefully, I mean, not that you can always not let, but you're, you're going you're to care, you're going to love, you're going to do everything in your power to help them be in a good place or get to a better place. Rabbi, Rabbi Nachman implored in Sanhedrin, the Talmud, if only for such anger. In other words, halavai God should be so angry with us love us so much to be angry, right? Who will provide, Rashi says, who will provide that this anger come upon us? In other words, let this happen. With pouring wrath shall I rule over you, that he should redeem us against our will and rule over us. In other words, let God schlep us in, kicking and screaming. Let it happen. Let God be furious with us and redeem us. That's what Rabbi Nachman says. Isn't it powerful? It's like it's the whole dynamic of love and connection and, and unbreakable bonds. The inward cry. The inward cry arouses the inwardness and essence of the blessed infinite light where the afflictions of Israel do reach. When a person cries out in pain, when a person cries out in a, in, 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 with their, the depths of their soul, God absolutely hears it. God absolutely reacts to it because we are in this deep relationship with God. So what's the conclusion? What's the conclusion? Here we go. Let's wrap this up and let's read this text. The text does the wrap-up for us. What have we of all this? The fact that one blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even if he commits sin. In other words, a person says, I'll be okay. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'll be fine. That, that rationalization is only due to the enticements and persuasions of the eight Sahara, but this conceals and turns him from the way of truth. Let's continue 182. Whoever is, the, quote, the man who desires life must control his heart and not be enticed by the falsehoods of the eights or heart of the evil inclination. He must know his way well and what his duty is. And then he will confidently pursue the path of fulfilling Torah and mitzvot without turning aside to the right or, or the left 
on the eight Sahara's enticements. He must ignore him, i.e., the eight Sahara, for his every word is founded on falsehood, and the eight Sahara's intention is only to test him. His heart, this is like the blessing, please God will comprehend the truth, and he will serenely tread the path of Torah and mitzvot. Then he will live a spiritual life and a physical life. That means he'll enjoy a blessing and spiritually and physically. So here, that's how Discourse 11 ends, and that's how we wrap up what I believe began in Discourse 2 or 3. I'm talking about like probably 50, 60, 70, 80 pages ago. This has been a very long piece. So this book is called Overcoming Folly. And the folly that we're dealing with is the rationalization where a person says, I'm, listen, I'm going to just do whatever I want and I'll be fine. I'll be okay. I'll be successful. I'll find success somewhere. I'll make it happen. And the point here is, sure, that's theoretically possible. But God cares too much about you to just let you do whatever you want. If God didn't care, then that might have been a decent option. God doesn't care anyway. I'll do whatever I want. And I can, the warehouse is always open. I can collect what I want. But God cares about us. God cares about you and I. God says, I care what you do. I don't want to be disconnected from you. I want you to embrace me in your life. This is the ammunition, the intellectual ammunition that we can use in our own lives when faced with this thought. When faced with the thought, what I do doesn't matter. Let this be the counter thought. What I do does matter. Not because God is a micromanaging, whatever, difficult boss. Because God loves me. And because God loves me, what I do matters. Okay, so I am listening in um, a conversation with two philosophers. And they are having this debate right now. And it's interesting, um, so I want to know from a Kabbalistic point of view, so that this idea of what, um, what I... Um, do affects other people. So the debate is like, and I think we've, we've talked about it, but I want to know a little more in depth. So, for example, if you're embezzling from someone and they never ever know their whole life, they go to this relationship and it's, they never know that you've taken money from them and never hurt them, never hurt their pocket. So one philosopher saying, um, then it's okay. It's actually okay. It's There's nothing morally wrong with that. And they also use the example of if you're having a relationship on the side, a romantic relationship, and the person never ever knows about it, and the person goes to their grave believing they were loved, and they were loved, that is not affecting their relationship. And the other philosopher saying, yes, these things do matter, like what you're saying. But I would like to know from a Kabbalistic point of view, how if someone's not affected by the embezzlement of, of love or the embezzlement of money, um, how that does affect them? Like, what is, what is the effect? So there's two. So you're asking an interesting question. Like, if, if someone is doing something that might hurt someone, but they don't know about it, so then they're not hurt because they're not aware of it, does the hurt happen? If the tree falls in the forest and no one hears the sound, yeah. if the hurt happens... This is the debate. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's a philosophical debate. So, I mean, I think you would... I, you could probably guess my answer. My response would be, it's absolutely wrong. Right? Because wrong... Right, moral morality and ethics in Judaism is not about necessarily the effect. It's not a um, it's not a functional wrong. It's not a utilitarian wrong. It's an objective wrong. It's a it's a it, it gets to the core of is this right or is this wrong. So, irrespective of the fact whether they know about it or they or, or it affects them, 
the fact that it's wrong means that I'm doing something wrong, and that, if for, for, number one, the action is wrong. Number two, it affects me in a negative way. It has a, a deleterious effect on me. And on a th the third point is it does affect the other person, even if we convince ourselves that. I know you're setting up a scenario where it doesn't affect them, right. but I would, I would say, right, that's, that's the setup. I get it, and I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say, well, but that's impossible because you're literally saying, but that's the setup. But even if that were the case, which is impossible, even if that were the case, um, it would still create an impression in the universe, a negative energy in the universe and negative energy with God. So on all four levels. And against, it's, it's against the mitzvah, too. Right. So on all four levels. So number one, it's wrong. Number two, it affects me negatively. Number three, I'm going to say it affects them negatively. Number four, oh, it affects the environment, the, the world itself. And number five. It affects, well, you could strike the third one, which is that person, because we took that out from the equation. Can you, can you explain how it does affect the other person if the person is not aware of it? Yeah, because I, I don't believe that it doesn't affect, I, I don't believe that it's possible that it's not going to affect the other person. But can you expand on that? That's what, that was my question. I, I mean... Because you are Now, that's affecting you. Yeah, 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 because I, I, don't, I don't believe you can show up. I don't believe you can show up and face that other person knowing that you've harmed them and be the same person. I, I, don't, I don't believe it's possible. Are you telling me that's, that, that someone who's, um, what's the word, sociopath can do it? Uh, okay, maybe, maybe. But I mean, is that what we're talking about here? Sociopath, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think we're gonna talk that, I don't I mean, think that's the- more like compartmentalizing. I understand, but what I'm saying is I don't think it's possible that that, that doesn't affect. I don't think it's possible to hold that. I don't think it's possible to hold that. Yeah. And, and the person, the person that did the wrong thing, right? And the other person is unaware of it. Yeah. But that unaware person is living the relationship as if that other person was fully committed. Right. And living the relationship of faith and believing that the other person is on the same. So right, they, that the first the person who hasn't done wrong is affected. Yes, because. They've been lying. Yes, yeah, so they're living a lie, not of their own. They're committing to someone that's not, it's not as committed to them. Right. So on that level, they're affected. But I'm going to say even the way it's coming from that person to that person, I, I just, I don't know that it's, it's one of the, um, it's one of the subsequent follies where a person, uh, let me see if I can find it very quickly. Um, the next folly that we're going to talk about is, oh. Huh. Discourse 12, page 184, the next page. Another enticement of the Yitzhar is that no one will see him, for the sinner does not want others to know of his failings. Um, in this manner, the Yitzhar entices man that no one will see him or ever know of his misdeeds, but it just isn't so. People do see, do know, and do recognize him for what he is. Without fail, he will do something to make people suspicious. In other words, and I guess that's what I'm being influenced by, is this idea that I don't think that it can be... I, I, saying someone was able to, to trick someone for all these years and they never knew about it, but did it not affect the quality of the relationship? I'm going to say that it did. Yeah. I'm going to say even if they didn't know exactly what it was, did it affect the quality of the relationship? hundred. You can't show up the same way knowing what you know. You know what? They, there's an expression in Yiddish, if a cup from a ganif. Uh, it's on the... It's on the it's, you know, when, when someone steals, they suddenly think, like, oh, oh well, you suspect me of something? Why do you suspect me of something? You're like, I, I, I was just looking at you. Like, I didn't, wasn't suspecting you of anything. 
because you feel guilty, right? So you feel self-conscious, so you think everyone's looking at you in a certain way. Meanwhile, no one's looking at you, right? It's the paranoia. There's, I don't believe there's a way to show up the same way with that. I, so, but again, I... Versus Jewish, and he's coming exactly from this perspective, and the other one's more of a materialist and um, kind of atheistic, so it's interesting. Look, I, I, but again, I, I understand that the premise of the question, so if we're speaking just pure philosophically, yeah. if, if the premise is that they are, the other party is not at all going to be affected in any way, so now what? Uh, so there's still four elements that, that, that are negative about it. Right, notwithstanding, and I'm going to say even the premise in practice is not possible. In other words, in theory, it's a question. In practice, that is not a uh, not a thing. The point is like this: when we're when, when we're in a relationship, what we do affects the other. In our relationship with God, what we do affects. Now, now it's going to sound like you know we we affect God. Yeah, we do because God says, "I'm in this with you." Anyway, all right. So what's the bottom line? Bottom bottom line is. When the Yetzirah strikes and says, in our heads, and says, hey, do this, you'll be fine, you'll be okay, no one's getting hurt. The, 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 the next thought should be, not so fast, not so fast, I'm in a loving relationship, I'm in a committed relationship with God, I don't, I'm, I'm not prepared to do something to pull me out of that relationship. It's not, it's not worth it for me, it's not in my best interest, it's not, it's not, it's not who I am, it's not what I'm about. That's yes. what the serpent was trying to say. Yes. The serpent was saying, taste good, don't worry about God, you'll be fine. You're going to die, you're not going to die, you'll be fine. And the answer is, you know what, I'll die, I won't die, it doesn't make a difference. I'm not going to do something to compromise my relationship. I, I'm in a relationship, God cares about me, I care about him. We just have to remind ourselves from time to time. All right, um, see you guys. Enjoy, enjoy. We're going to sign off on our uh, Zoom crew. Joy, David, Alex, Fran, and Tony, great to see you guys. Don't forget, quick uh, scheduling announcement. This week, we have DPP. I think we're doing it in person tomorrow. Please, God, let me know if you want to be there at 12, uh, 12 noon. Lunch from Spicy Peach. You order it, we pick it up. Um, that's at noon. We have regularly scheduled Torah studies on Wednesday night. We have Thursday night, a brand new course, the Curious Tales of the Talmud 2. The adventure continues. So join me for that. You can find out more information on the website. Also check out all the other stuff upcoming, including a Shabbat learner service this weekend, Shabbat, after, Shabbat morning, interactive service. First time we're doing it. Big launch is this weekend. All right. I think that's it for right now. All right. Zeigesund. We'll see you all. Have a great day. Have a great week. Shavuot Tov. All right. Yes. Sure.